don't ever underestimate the power of tapping somebody on the shoulder and just saying, you know, I think you might be good in this. Because that's what happened to me. There was a, t- you know, when I was being a mom, I didn't necessarily feel like I had the best skill set. Mm-hmm. But when somebody outside of my family tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, you really have a gift for leading a group or motivating people or bringing people together. And you're like, oh, I never saw that in myself. So having somebody point that out to me was really instrumental, I think. Welcome to Freaking Out About Work with Randy Freaking, a podcast about working. That is the occupations that people pursue or simply fall into, as many of us do, and how work brings them dignity along with cash. We will visit with real people and learn how working has been important in their lives. After talking to literally thousands of potential and actual clients over the last three decades, I have learned firsthand how people find dignity in what they do, regardless of the type of job they do, because work allows them to have meaning, to help provide cash for their families, for themselves. And so, this podcast focuses on people who work for a living, how that work affects them, and what lessons they have learned. This episode is sponsored by the law firm of Freaking Myers and Rule, with offices in Cincinnati and Dayton, Ohio. Visit fmr.law for more information. Freaking Myers and Rule are advocates for working people and focus on employment law and serious injury. Today's episode is number 23. We are honored to have as a guest today, Christine Watkins, a woman who has worked in real estate for most of the last 14 years and engaged in outreach programs and volunteered for much of the last 25 years. And recently supported on an interim basis a well-known former chief executive officer in his government and nonprofit consulting business. Christine has now returned to real estate, and her current position is Real Estate Services Manager for Equity LLC, a Columbus, Ohio-based full-service commercial real estate company. From these roles, she has found dignity and she will share some of the lessons and experiences from her career. So without further ado, Christine Watkins, welcome to Freaking Out About Work. Thanks, Randy. It's great to be here. Well, Christine, uh, why don't we start by having you tell us a little bit about yourself to start off this episode. You know, things like your upbringing, your education, and your family. So I was uh, spent most of my growing up years in Fort Wayne, Indiana. I'm considered a Hoosier at heart. I'm uh, home of the <laughs> Fort Wayne Comets in the uh, American Hockey League, I think. Absolutely, absolutely. And they've had their share of um, minor league baseball teams there as well. Mm. The Tin Caps and the Wizards. Don't ask me any more than that, though. Okay. Um, but anyway, I'm the oldest of three kids. I have two younger brothers the only girl. Hmm. And uh, something interesting is my mom is the daughter of immigrants who came from the Azores, which I think one of your other guests had some connections to the Azores, which is- uh, Date de Medeiros. Exactly. I think her husband's family was from the Azores. Exactly. So my- Which is just a little island off of uh, Portugal, (laughs) I believe, or- Maybe it's a little bit farther. About 600 miles from Portugal, but it is a Portuguese province, yes. That's incredible. I wish I would have known that when I was talking to Kate in episode, that would have been episode 22, just our last episode. Right, right. Which was a fascinating episode about ageism. Exactly, exactly. And it's interesting. So my my grandparents immigrated to uh, the New England area from the Azores for a better life. Uh, my mom's first-generation American, and she's one of six kids, and uh, her family uh, did not have any economic future in the Azores. It's a beautiful place, but um, the economy was bad, and my grandfather came first and set up an insurance business and uh, sent for hmm. my grandmother 
um, months later once he got himself established. So I always thought that was pretty cool to have that Portuguese background and uh, always felt proud of how how much struggle my grandparents had to go through to learn a new language and a, and a new culture and, and get situated here. You know, I was all, almost going to joke about whether or not there was a band from travel from the Azores, you know, but then it dawned on me they probably arrived by a boat. They did. They they arrived by boat. And uh, a, a lot of the- But Ellis Island, right? Yeah, exactly. So when they came when they came to America, the name was Silva. So my maiden name is Silvia, like the woman's first name, Silvia. Mm-hmm. But the uh, the Portuguese name was De Silva, so S I L V A. And when okay. they came through Ellis Island, it was Americanized to Silvia. So there's quite a few Portuguese immigrants, especially in the the New Bedford Fall River area of Massachusetts. That's where a lot of them settled. That's where my family settled. And then uh, my parents eventually, through work and whatever, ended up in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Have you ever had a chance to go back to the homeland, so to speak, to visit the Azores? I did. I did. In uh, 2016, my daughter was studying abroad in Spain, Hmm. and I went to see her during her spring break, and we traveled to the Azores. We traveled around Portugal and Spain, and then we we traveled to the Azores. And it's a magnificently beautiful country. Just, it's so beautiful. And I kind of had this thought in my head that it were these, it was these little islands, you know, that we would. Right. That's what I have in my head. (laughs) But, but they're not. I mean, they're, they're sizable and you, you do have to have a car when you're there. It's not like you can bike ride around the island. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's so beautiful. Rocky coastlines and black sandy beaches, hot springs. It's, it's very, very beautiful. Now, they're out in the Atlantic Ocean or in the Mediterranean Sea? In the Atlantic Ocean. In the Atlantic it's, Ocean. It's its own country. Uh, I don't, I, I know it's part of Portugal. So oh, I don't know like, if it's a province or I, I'm not sure. It'd be sure. like Puerto Rico as the United States. Yes. Maybe it's a territory or something. I think so. I think you're right. I think it's we'll a need territory. To, we'll need to research that. We will. Okay. How about your grandparents? Do you know anything about what they did for a living? Like your grandfather? Or grandmother? Well, unfortunately, my my grandfather, well, when he did come to America, he studied and learned English. Mm -hmm. And he worked for, I think it was John Hancock Insurance. Um, And he did that for years, but he died as a young man. So my mom Mm -hmm. was only nine years old when her dad passed away. And her mom never really had learned very much English, just knew enough to get by. And she, their lives drastically changed because uh, there wasn't any um, financial security for them. And I know that my grandmother, kind of like they had to move to the other side of the tracks. Uh, right. And she lived in this little tenement apartment until, you know, she passed away many years later. But she and worked as a seamstress, took an ironing, did all kinds of domestic chores for people. And your mom eventually met your my father. My mom met my dad and this... Um, he was a uh, um, did some engineering. I, I'm not really sure exactly everything that he studied, but uh, worked for Corning Glass and got transferred out to Indiana. And um, my parents they divorced when I was in middle school, so those were some rocky years. And being the oldest, I was home a lot while my mom was out working and earning a living to support the family and taking care of my brothers. And uh, I was very fortunate that my mom met my stepdad, and he became a very uh, stable, safe person to have in our house and and in our lives. And uh, I was really fortunate that he was part of our our world. But there was a time there where your mom had to go out and work in order to support the three of you after yeah, the divorce. Yeah, exactly. She was, and so it's funny. So she took on a little bit like what her mom did. She had some tough roads, mm-hmm. uh, you know, ahead of her and had to, she worked in a doctor's office for many years. And I'll never forget being in middle school and, um, you know, your reputation is everything to you at that age and your friends. And my mom's uh, car died and she didn't have the money to get it fixed. And so one of the doctors she worked with had uh, some old 54 Chrysler. And he said, well, you can drive this. 
And so she brought this big old green 54 Chrysler <laughs> home, and she took us to school in that, and I was just mortified. <laughs> I mean, I was mortified, but really, it would have been pretty cool had I had Because this would have been the 70s or yeah, the early 80s, something exactly. like that? It was in the 70s. It was in the 70s, yeah. So anyway, but yeah, I grew up with, with parents who worked hard. Um, yeah. They had a good work ethic. And and eventually, like I said, my mom met this great man and uh, got married again. And um, she ended up working in the school system. That was her position. She worked as an elementary school secretary for many years. And my stepdad worked in, he was kind of a logistics and um, systems guy, worked for Tokheim, which manufactured gas pumps in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Well, I was going to ask you what you learned from your parents, but it sounds like you learned your work ethic. And we're going to talk a little bit about mm -hmm. your work ethic and your professionalism because our our paths crossed at some point in your career yes, about they 10 did. years ago or so. But we're going to get to that. So you yes. went to Indiana University. I did. I was a proud Hoosier. I went to Indiana University, and I had planned to study business. I was uh, a good student. I got straight A's through high school, graduated in the top of my class, and I was uh, going to be a business major. <laughs> and when I got there, I took classes in the humanities, and I was captivated by the subjects. I loved my philosophy classes, sociology, psychology, and I ended up majoring in sociology. And the initial plan was that I was going to go on and uh, become a social worker. I wanted to become a medical social worker. Like work in a hospital? Right, mm -hmm. right. Um, but at the end of those four years, a couple things happened. I, I, I really wish I had had a strong mentorship going on in my college years, because I think I could have benefited from that. But I was literally so anxious just to get out of school, <laughs> and I didn't have a clear vision of what my career path was going to look like. I just wanted to be out. I just wanted to grab my diploma and leave. Mm -hmm. And that's what I did. I said, well, if I need to go to grad school to become a social worker, I'm going to take a little break. So you really would have benefited from having like a guidance counselor we would have in high school, right? Or like a professor in college who was more of a mentor. Right. Like when I've seen my kids go through their college experiences, especially my daughter, she she was so good at taking advantage of the services that some of her professors would offer as far as, hey, office hours, come talk to me. I'll be your you know, I'll help you see what your future might look like if you go down this path. And I never really felt like I had that nudge, that push to have a relationship with a with staff at the university, whether it was a professor or a guidance counselor, somebody to help lay out the road of this is what your life might look like if you go down this career path or you take these courses or you go and get this graduate degree. And so I felt like I floundered just a little bit at the end of that four-year college experience. And yeah, I definitely would have benefited from some mentorship. Well, that's a good lesson for any listeners who are, you know, in high school or college to seek out a professor or somebody like that. You know, I think of high schools as having people that help you, like, choose a college. And there are guidance counselors but at least when I was in college and even law school, there was really no formal mentorship program or you really do it to seek it out. Right, right. So you graduate from IU. What about your personal life after there? Did, did you uh, end up getting married? I did. I, I, I mean, I do know you ended up I getting did, married. I, I did get married. I um, So after school, I, I lived in uh, Indianapolis for a little bit and worked a couple different jobs. Just floundering, you know, not really finding my my path. And uh, this guy came along that I knew in college, and uh, we hit it off. And I decided to follow him to Florida because that sounded better than spending another winter in Indiana. Exactly. So when I got down to Florida, I really had a great job experience working in the hotel industry, which, of course, is very prevalent. I worked in um, the Sanibel area, worked at a nice resort, and got my feet wet in that business and, and did that for several years. We got married. And when my first child was born, 
I decided that I really wanted to stay home and not work my crazy hotel hours anymore. So I did. I became a full-time mom. My husband was the main breadwinner. And that was the pattern. Then I had two more kids and and pretty much stayed home most of the time. I did have a few part-time jobs, but for the most part, I was a full-time at-home parent. So this would have been the 1990s, right? Yep, 1990s. And so you're in Sanibel, Captiva area. Well, after baby number one, we moved back to the Midwest. Okay. So by this time, we're back. Actually, we're in Cincinnati then when the other two children were born. Well, I'm curious. I mean, this is a little bit off subject, but you didn't happen to work at the South Seas Plantation, did you? I know. I know the South Seas Plantation. I worked at, it was called Sinesta Sanibel Harbor, and it was Mm. right at the causeway. So on this side of the causeway, and it had a big tennis center there. It was called the Jimmy Connors U.S. Tennis Center. My wife and I went to Sanibel Island for our honeymoon. Did you? Traveled People's Express for $69 each. And we landed in Sanibel, and we had a great time for a week. We went to dinner virtually every night at Tween Waters, a little restaurant that's between Sanibel and Captive, I believe. I know that well. And it was a great place. So, okay, so you come back here. Well, you came back to Indiana. Uh, Indiana briefly, and then we, uh, my husband got a job in Cincinnati. So the, the other two kids were born in Cincinnati. Well, tell us about that decision to become a state, you know, to work from home raising your children. I loved that. Mm-hmm. I loved it 100%. Um, m- my mom was home with us for a lot of the time when I was young. Um, and I I didn't ever feel like I had the capacity to stretch myself that thin to, to work full time and have a husband who traveled a lot with his job mm-hmm. and take care of the kids and daycares and all of that. And um, we lived very, very modestly. We had one car for a long time. We had a very small house, and it enabled me to to spend that time at home with the kids. And I really, really enjoyed it. I, I really liked that. Did you ever have the experience? I know some women these days that choose to work from home and raise their children experience kind of getting stigmatized as, you know, hey, you're not why don't you work? And it kind of drives me crazy. You know, my wife, Sue, uh, worked until we had two kids, and then she worked at home raising the children. And I think it's such a valuable career. Yeah, yeah. Great for the kids. But women do suffer the slings and arrows of that, I think, a little bit. Did you ever experience that? I think I was fortunate in that I didn't. And it might have been just the circle that I ran with. You know, mm-hmm. the neighborhood where I where we lived, where we grew up, we were in some estates and uh, Anderson. Um, there were a lot of stay-at-home moms. And so I definitely wasn't the only one. And uh, so, no, I, I was lucky. Yeah, you were lucky. Mm-hmm. Um, how about when you're raising the children? Did you do any kind of, uh, you didn't have an occupation or a job or a career outside of the home, but did you do any kind of volunteer activities either with the kids or in the community? I did get very involved in some church ministries. We went to Mount Washington Presbyterian Church. I still go there. And uh, I became very involved in a children's ministry program there. that It's called Super Wednesday. And they Mm. would host that weekly during the school year. And it was a phenomenal program. I started off just working child care, and then I became... Uh, you know, activities leader, and then I I led the program for many years. And essentially, they would bring in children between the ages of first grade and sixth grade. They'd come to church on on a Wednesday and spend three hours there. Mm. They would do dinner and mm. uh, Bible study activities and uh, a musical activity. And we had eighty adult volunteers, and so I coordinated that for 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 a, long, a good period of time. And that gave me a lot of experience and built my skill level, mm-hmm. which then translated into being able to get employment when I did return to the workforce. Yeah, it's quite an operation. So what do you think drew you to do that? You could have just stayed home, raised the kids, not done anything in the community. Right. I think, first of all, I, my parents always volunteered. My parents were always um, involved in their community and their church and oh. um, and 
I just, by seeing them do that, I, I felt like it was an expectation. It was almost an obligation to be able to give back to the community. And uh, and having a church family was always important to me. And, you know, though, the one thing that really, don't ever underestimate the power of tapping somebody on the shoulder and just saying, you know, I think you might be good in this. Because that's what happened to me. There was a, t- you know, when I was being a mom, I didn't necessarily feel like I had the best skill set. Mm-hmm. But when somebody outside of my family tapped me on the shoulder and said, hey, you really have a gift for leading a group or motivating people or bringing people together. And you're like, oh, I never saw that in myself. So having somebody point that out to me was really instrumental, I think, in helping me see myself getting more and more involved in this in this activity. Well, it's interesting because your parents kind of modeled the volunteerism. Right. And you pick that up. And then this power of tapping someone on the shoulder. I've never really heard that before. Hmm. But I think that's really interesting. If you see somebody who would be good, it could right. be in anything, right? right. It could be a right. coach of a team. It could be a volunteer in a church. Yeah. It could be a, a job of some sort. Everybody, You'd be a really good such and such. I think everybody wants to be wanted and recognized. And, and you know, I think you go through your life in different phases where you may not feel like you have anything to offer. But yet somebody from the outside may be seeing uh, a trait in you that they think might be perfect. And, you know, you got to speak up and say that because that can really help develop somebody and uh, and fill a need. So that's what I was able to experience. Right. A lot of people don't want to, like, self-promote themselves. Right. 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 I'd be really good leading this program. Or that you don't but think they... you have, or you don't think you can. So I don't think for me it wasn't as much about self-promotion as I didn't really think I had any skills. Well, that's what I mean. A lot of people don't feel like they should speak up because a, not a lack of self-confidence, but maybe just humility. Right. Right. But if somebody actually taps them on the shoulder, that gives them the impetus to do it. Right. Right. Hmm. So then what, what, what brought you back to the workforce outside of the home? Um, I think uh, the kids had gotten older, um, and I think in, really it was financial. We had encountered some, um, I'd say, financial boulders mm-hmm. <laughs> in our lives. Uh, my husband had lost a job. We started a business together. We had to close a business together. There were, you know, there were just some big financial hits that, you know, disrupted the the savings plan. And I thought, well, you know, the kids are older. I didn't have any babies anymore. Uh, trying to get babysitters wasn't going to be as much of an issue. They're so, more like in high school. Right. So I started to go back uh, to work. And actually, the daughter was still in elementary school, and I was just working part-time. I did some work at Mercy Hospital, uh, working in registration there, met some great people. And then I did a little work with a, a business that my I started with my husband. Uh, and then I got a job, and it was actually through a temporary agency. And it was with uh, Grubb & Ellis West Shell Commercial, which was a downtown commercial real estate company. And I think they now function as Colliers. And I started off as a temp there doing some marketing work mm-hmm. and stayed on for, for a good amount of time until the recession hit in 2008. And their business dramatically uh, decreased. Mm -hmm. And I left there voluntarily just because there wasn't that much work left for me to do. Mm -hmm. At some point, you and your husband broke up. We did. So uh, that was in about 2010. Uh, My husband and I got a divorce after 21 years of marriage. And it was very difficult. It was very painful. Um, and I was actually working f- for you at the time. And um, those were great years 2008 yeah. or so to 2012, I think. Exactly. You that did was a fantastic the... job back then. Well, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. Um, but yeah, I uh, at that point in time, I we went through mediation. And one of the uh, requirements of the mediation was that we go see uh, 
accountant. We go as a couple and we go individually. And that was like picking up every rock in your marriage and looking at it, like looking under every rock, I should say. You know, everything that every credit card bill, every debt, every transaction was just picked up and looked at. And I think my husband and I had both had a bad habit of shoving things financially (laughs) in the corner. And here we had to both sit here and look at these things. (laughs) And it was shocking. But honestly, it was probably the most valuable thing that could have happened, at least to me, because I was able to say, okay, um, I'm going to be going forward as a single person. I'm going to have some support for X amount of years, and then that's going to go away. And where do I want to be and, and what do I have? You know, what's my realistic picture? And I think that's when it dawned on me that I I wanted to be able to make more money. I wanted to be on a more direct career path so that I could have the life that I saw for myself. And it wasn't by any means anything extravagant, but I just knew that I I knew that it was up to me. Like it was just going to be up to me. And the accountant, by having you look at all these expenses revealed to you that you were wasting money places no, or I, there we were areas were, you we could never cut felt, back? We never felt like we were wasting money. But I think, um, I don't know. I don't really know how to describe it. It's like if you never pay attention to it, you never know what it is. Mm-hmm. And so I think for the first time, I actually had a financial plan. You know, when we were talking about we had to sell our house and split that asset. And by having this accountant tell me, okay, you can buy a new house and you're going to put 20% down. And this is exactly how much you can spend. Mm-hmm. I had really never had that kind of like direct uh, information about how to spend my money and how to budget my money until I met with that accountant. And it, it was life-changing for me. And unfortunately, it was right around the time of your divorce. I mean, you, well, it, yeah, it was a result of the divorce. Yes. I wish we had had on I wish we had had that financial counseling early on in our marriage because I think it could have uh, it, it could have saved a lot of pain. Right. So I'll have to get David Cassidy of Cassidy Schiller and Associates to sponsor this podcast. Maybe have him on as an expert uh, accountant of some sort to help people. But uh, that's for another day. So how did the, um, in addition to your need to have compensation, and you said you had felt a need to maybe plan better for the future, how did working outside of the home affect you after being outside the workplace for so long? So it was an interesting transition because I, I went back part-time and then I graduated to full-time. But I also had my husband bringing in the bulk of our, our money. And so it, I was getting the benefits of building up some skills while not being stressed out with supporting our family in 100%. But then as time went on, I had to be able to uh, make more money on my own. And I wasn't, um, didn't really feel like I had established a very strong career trajectory coming out of college. I didn't have a specific degree that was going to earn me a high hourly wage. And an opportunity to get into real estate kind of promised that opportunity. Mm -hmm. Not a guarantee, but maybe dangled that carrot of, Mm -hmm. okay, you might have an opportunity to earn more money doing this than anything else that you've done so far. And that's when I made that change. And were you a realtor? I got my real estate license in 2012. When I worked for Grevin Ellis, I wasn't a realtor. I, I was in a support role back then. So after I left working for you, and I don't want to miss out telling people how great it was to work for you. Well, it's a good law firm. <laughs> it is a good, it's a very good law firm. Lots of good people. But when I when I left uh, Freaking Myers and Rule, I did get my real estate license, and uh, and and set off on a different path. But let's let's back up a little bit. So you're working for Grubb and Ellis, right? right? Mm-hmm. What prompted the change that you ended up at our law firm? I don't recall. I'm sure I probably talked to you at the time, but uh, what prompted that change? 
So I had um, I had left Grab Analysis, as I mentioned. It was 2008. The recession hit, and commercial real estate was hit very hard by that recession. Um, and so I was primarily supporting two agents doing their marketing work. And because their business dropped off so much, there there really wasn't enough work for me. And I was the newest hire, and mm-hmm. um, I left voluntarily. It, it coincided with my oldest son's uh, last year in high school, getting ready to go off to college. And just to kind of be on the home front for a little bit was okay. I took that summer off. We went to Coney Island every day. It was great. And then that fall, I got a call from Beth Shermer. Beth Shermer. Your office manager. And she knew me. We'd known each other for years. And um, she said, hey, there, we have this opportunity. And I think at that time, Randy, it was a receptionist position. And she thought that it might develop into more. But mm-hmm. she goes, this is what I have right now. Would you be interested? And I thought, yeah, the timing was right. So I went down, met with Beth, met you, and uh took And you that became job. like an intake paralegal. Exactly. That was a bulkier career. Right. Maybe what did that job entail? And were there any particular lessons or challenges in that job? That was- You did a, that for three, three and a half years? Yeah, exactly. Very um, difficult job. It, it was a good job. It was a good way to learn about employment law and what you do. I handled incoming phone calls for folks who wanted to work with or at least ask about working with you or with one of the other attorneys at the firm. So these were people who had different kinds of employment issues or and some personal injury calls we would get as well. Um, but most of them were employment-related people with the severance package questions, people who felt like they had been mistreated in the workplace, all, all kinds of things. Some of them were very urgent. <laughs> and that was stressful. Yes. Um, no, it's a very difficult job, I think. And so, you know, I think the biggest thing I learned in that job was uh, listening to people. You know, for, for a while, they just had to get on that phone and they had to vent. And sometimes they were crying or yelling or, you know, worried. And, uh, and then just being able to explain to them what the process for the law firm was, how we had to collect some information from them that would help uh, determine how you might be able to assist them. And then get ultimately get them scheduled with one of the attorneys. So maybe your sociology degree uh, came back to help you in that. I know you were very mm-hmm. good talking to them and, and listening to those potential clients. I think so. I I think um, I think, and and this has happened for me in other jobs that I've had as well. That when people are in that highly emotional state they just oftentimes have to get that out and get it off their chest and you know obviously i'm not the i'm not the legal expert i'm not going to be able to give them any advice and i'm sure you wouldn't have wanted me to anyway but i could be that person just listening to them mm-hmm. and then helping them see that okay here's this is what we're going to do next we're going to get this information from you and then we're going to set up this appointment and um it was really uh valuable and it meant a lot to me to see people's come in at this high level of excitement and just kind of calm down through the call (laughs) (laughs) to where you could assure them that yes we were going to go forward we were going to take some action and this is what these were the next steps right you know when you, you you worked as an intake paralegal what i recall is that i noticed about you was your proactive work ethic and that you were a very confident kind of self-starter. Uh, you know, you dug into the job, you learned it quickly, you were very organized, you worked hard, etc. Those are fairly good traits for an owner of a business to see. As you reflect upon your life and your career, what, what do you think caused you to develop those positive traits? So I don't know if that's really um, something that you get from your parents or if you're born with those traits or maybe it's a little bit of both. Um, As I mentioned, I I saw my parents work hard their whole life. They had a 
expectation of doing things well. And I think I picked that up from them. But on the other hand, I, you know, as a student, when I was in school, I loved to get A's. Like I want, <laughs> I wanted to get an A. I wanted to get a hundred percent. And I really, um, I relished in being praised for being a good student. Mm-hmm. So when I look at my three kids, they're all different. You know, maybe one of them likes getting A's. Maybe one of them likes skating by. It's it. So I don't know the difference. I don't know what the impact was from how the how you're raised versus what's just innate in you. Mm-hmm. But I'm the, I'm I am the type of person that just likes to be do a good job. Yeah, it does sound like your parents were like that. Your grandparents. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe part of that is just the value of praise. Did you like when you're Grub and Ellis, Creaking Myers and Roll? Did you get positive reinforcement, and did that help you in your job? I mean, I think a lot of some employees want that, some employees need it, some employees don't care. Isn't that interesting? So I think that's a challenge. Then when you're a manager, to know your employees. I mean, have you ever read mm-hmm. the book, The Five Love Languages? I have not read that book. Oh, Randy. Well, so there, tell me about the book, The Five well, Love Languages. I don't, I don't have, I don't want to go into too much detail because I, I'll mess it up. I'll mess up my recollection of it. But essentially it talks about, and this is a book about relationships. It's really geared towards romantic relationships and how we all respond and show we show love and receive love in different ways. So whether that's through physical touch or uh, gift giving or words of affirmation. Well, the same author, I believe, wrote a book about the five language, five love languages in the workplace. And I think that's really interesting because employees experience appreciation um, in different ways. And I think it's good to know how your employees you know, like that and want it. So for me, I always thought it was so cool when I was in my office and usually on a Friday afternoon, you would kind of wander the halls and you would just pop in, sit in a chair across from someone's <laughs> desk and just have a conversation. And to me, that meant a lot because it meant that I was I was valued by the boss. I was valued by the big guy. So I don't know. Maybe George or Kelly didn't really care about that, but <laughs> having right. to go in and talk with them. But. Well, I, I do think managers and supervisors yeah. don't always appreciate that. You really do have to look at it. You know, we're always telling people you treat everybody the same. You want to be consistent. But that doesn't mean that you don't look. The, okay, some people need to be stroked. Some people don't. And so managers just have to pay attention to who's working for them. Some people need right. it, some people don't. Some people like gifts, give them some, you know, the Reds tickets, and that's all they want. You know, right. That's, uh, but for, for others, it is it is those words of affirmation or acts of service or praise or, or whatever. So, Well, I can remember when I was a young lawyer at Frost and Jacobs, and, you know, I turned something into one of these partners, and— I wouldn't get any feedback. I'd get, you know, something marked up, but there was never anything positive. And I said something at one point, and they were like, hey, listen, uh, we expect you to do your best. And I thought that was a really odd comment, you know, because they obviously were not paying attention to what people needed to hear. They needed some feedback, positive or negative. Um, Okay. Um, you know, you said something to me once that I thought was insightful. You said that you like to view assignments that you received in the workplace through the eyes of the owner. Can you elaborate on that at all? I wish I knew who told me that or, or who taught me that. But I know I heard it from somebody in my in my varied work career. And... Um, it, it meant a lot to me. Maybe I've worked. I've worked in a lot of small businesses. I've worked with small business owners, and you know, you're you build you an, an owner builds up their business, and they have to be so intentional about every aspect of it. 
And all it takes is one bad egg mm-hmm. in that small little pool of employees yeah. that can cause so much damage, you know, so much damage. And I think I've seen that happen. And um, luckily, most all the jobs I've had, I've had so much respect for the, you know, my boss or the owner of the company that I, I've always wanted to just be an outreach for them. Mm-hmm. So... I don't really know how that came about, but I do think that if you were going to have a small little employee manual, that that would be one of the things that you would put in there, like, you know, be an extension of the company, be the face of that company. And it, It's sort of like walking in somebody else's shoes. You know, so many employees, and I've learned this from listening to employees for the last 30 years, they never seem to stop and think about well, what do you think the boss, why do you think the boss is managing? How is he thinking? It's always pretty one-sided thought. Right. And that's right. why I thought it was really interesting when you said that you like to view it from the eyes of the owner when you're working for the business. But in any event, at some point, you then um, return to real estate. What do you think drew you back to the real estate industry? Well, I think... Um Again, it was the opportunity for uh, economic growth and and, and and to grow my skills. And so I got my real estate license. I worked for um, Huff Realty um, doing residential real estate. And I did that for about a year. And unfortunately, we were still coming out of that darn dep- uh, recession. recession. Mm-hmm. And uh, the housing market was just horrible. And so I found myself doing a lot of... Um, house rentals, like leases for single-family homes. And I tell you what, I never worked so hard for so little money in my entire life. But um, I learned a lot, and other opportunities came out of that. So I kind of scraped by for about a year, and I literally was at the point where I didn't know how I was going to make my next mortgage payment. I mean, that's how bad you know money had gotten. And I remember calling up or trying to show a home to some potential renters and uh, didn't get through, the key wouldn't work, the lockbox wouldn't work, and I'm getting on the phone and I'm finding out who owns this house, why, you know, who's got this listed, why can't I get in here? End up talking to uh, a gentleman who was a representative of American Homes for Rent. And uh, he said, yeah, we just came into the market, we bought up all these single family homes, I'm sorry this lockbox isn't working, do you need a job? And I'm like, <laughs> what? <laughs> and so long story short, I took a leasing position with this company that had recently moved in the market. They had 1,800 single-family homes, and I had hit, I hit the gold mine with it. I went to work for them. I stayed with them for about five years. And this was a company that was born out of the recession. So when all of the houses were you know, foreclosed mm-hmm. on and repossessed, then companies like American Homes for Rent across the country went in and bought them all for cash, right. rehabbed them, and and started renting them. And it came at a time when people were losing their jobs and losing their houses and having to move into rentals. So you had it was just the perfect time for that market to emerge. And I was lucky because they paid their leasing agents top dollar because they had these 1,800 homes. That, and like I said, that was just in this market that they wanted to get leased up right away. So I was one of the lucky ones. I got scooped up by American Homes for Rent, made some good money, and stayed there. And, and that was different than working on commission oh, as gosh. a real estate agent. Yeah. Not only did he say, you're going to get X amount of dollars for every lease you sign, we're going to pay your mileage. And you're an employee now, so you get employee benefits. So it was a, it was just a win-win. It was a, it was a real, it was a blessing. It was such a great opportunity to come along. How about helping those people that were in probably desperate need for housing, right? And they could rent a, a home, yeah, instead of an apartment. Exactly. So um, the houses that they were putting on the market were all suburban homes, you know, in, in good school areas. And a lot of these folks, uh, like you said, they were coming out of apartment living or um, they had lost their own homes. You know, maybe they had had a, a job loss during the recession. So it was a whole big kind of transformation of, of, of the market. 
the the difficulties came out in that type of in that job um, as the years went on, and you're putting these happy happy tenants in these homes, and they're getting them at a great price, and it's a brand new rehabbed home. And then in order to keep these the revenue coming, every year the rents are going up and up and up. Mm. And you and I talked a little bit about this, just the um, the influx of corporate landlords in the market, I think really have had a big effect on rents and, and rental rates. And that became uh, very conflicting for me. And uh, they weren't just getting one or two percent increases. No, per year. no. So that's that's a big difference when you're looking at owning a home versus versus renting. Um, and so the maybe four percent rent increase the first year, but then uh, the companies just kept pushing and pushing, and they would go five, six, seven, as much as ten percent increases uh, for rent. So why were you conflicted about all that? You were still getting paid a decent salary and, yeah, you know, things you were talking about. So talk a little bit about the conflict. So I think that that goes back to what you talk about um, and Studs Terkel talks about, the finding <laughs> meaning in your work. And I think for, and I think finding meaning in your work is different for everybody. For me, it just meant that um, the work that I do, I can be proud of. I can be proud of my employer um, it goes, meshes well with my values. Mm -hmm. And there was just that corporate greed side mm -hmm. of it that was not sitting well with me. Um, so yeah. And then you took a short term stint with Jim Gibbons, who is the former chief executive officer of Goodwill Industries International. Tell us a little bit about that and what you learned from him during that experience. Yeah, I, I had a little bit of a bumpy ride with the residential leasing market, and um, ended up uh, losing a job when a, when my office closed, and so I had been out of work for a little bit. And Jim Gibbons is a is a personal friend of mine. His wife is a childhood friend of mine. She was my very first friend when I moved to Fort Wayne, Indiana. <laughs> and uh, she married Jim after uh, after college. And one unique thing about Jim is he's blind, and he uh, was one of the first graduates of Harvard's MBA program as a blind student. Mm. So he went on to become the CEO of Goodwill Industries uh, International. He retired from there several years ago, and when he learned of my unemployment or my underemployment phase, he said, hey, I need a personal assistant. I'm driving my wife and my daughter crazy because they don't want to, you know, do all these things for me. <laughs> you know, would you be willing to do this until you find more work? So I stepped up and, and did that. And we did it all virtually because he lives in Indiana and I, here I am in Cincinnati. And uh, it was just a really great experience. And one thing I learned about or I learned from him was how important communication is. Um, because when he's sitting across from somebody, he's obviously not seeing their facial expressions. Mm -hmm. He's not picking up on those nuances. And so his spoken word and his written word are so very, very meaningful. And he's meticulous about what he says and how he says it. And he has got a great um, reputation for bringing sides together and I think it's it's all in the way he communicates. So what did that mean for you? How did you have to change your communication style working with someone who could not see you? And the, the body language and things like that. Now, he, <laughs> he's in Indiana. You're in Cincinnati. Yeah, yeah. Maybe you would have had that issue anyway. Well, so um, we're talking on the phone every day. Um, I think... I had to learn how to be very clear in how I was uh, either describing something mm -hmm. or what I was seeing and then describing that to him. And actually, when it comes down to it, it's not very different than what I would see the attorneys in your firm do. I remember sitting across from 
Carrie, Carrie Barron's office or, uh, you know, any of the other attorneys in there and listen to how they would talk with clients. And they had to focus on facts because, you know, those conversations can get very emotional. Mm -hmm. And you would hear them just say, let's just talk about the facts. Tell me exactly what happened. And so that reminded me of how I would talk with Jim. Like he would kind of want to hear things that way, like take the emotion out of it Mm -hmm. and just describe exactly what happened. And uh, so that was that was just, you know, I don't know how um, else to describe it, but he was just such a such a great communicator and so good with his words. And uh, I learned a lot from him. Well, Christine, I tell you, I think that's about all the time we have for this episode. And I am going to really think about what you said before, the power of tapping someone on the shoulder. I'm going to think about that and study that some more. Um, But I want to thank you for taking the time to join us today. I enjoyed the conversation. I think our listeners will really enjoy this. So thank you. Thanks for having me, Randy. Ladies and gentlemen, that concludes this episode of Freaking Out About Work with Randy Freaking, the podcast about everything related to your work, your rights and responsibilities in the workplace, whether you're a minimum wage worker, a blue or white collar employee, or an executive. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and we'll tune in next time when we explore more about working. I want to conclude this episode from Studs Terkel that I find valuable. Quote, work is about a search for daily meaning as well as daily bread, for recognition as well as cash, for astonishment rather than apathy. In short, for a sort of life rather than a Monday through Friday sort of dying. Unquote. Let's hope that we can all find daily meaning as well as daily bread and recognition as well as monetary benefits. See you next time on Freaking Out About Work and please spread the word if you have enjoyed this podcast. Tell your friends how easy it is to go to freakingoutabout.com and freaking out about is all one word. Thank you everyone.